Welcome, my name is Natasha Sherman and I am your host. And my guest today is Stephanie Casatli. Stephanie's mother was murdered in a convenience store robbery in New Orleans in 1980 when Stephanie was an 18-year-old college student. Nathan Wolf, the shooter and a drug addict, was caught and sent to prison. Since then, Stephanie has become a wife, a mother, professor, speaker, writer, and much of her work is centered on grief, healing, and the possibility of forgiveness. Stephanie has written a soon-to-be-published book, Notice of Release, and she's joining us today via Skype to share her story. Stephanie, welcome. Thank you, Natasha. It's nice to be here. Yes, and thank you for being willing to share your story. I assume that you've done it many times, and I suspect there must be some part of it that still is a little difficult, so I appreciate you being here. Thank you. Can we start with what happened? Sure. Um, 1980, New Orleans. Uh, I was 18 years old in college. Uh, my parents had recently divorced and my mother was uh, trying to get back on her feet, sort of to reestablish herself, needed money. Went to work in my uncle's package liquor convenience store on the outskirts of New Orleans where she was living and where, from where I had recently moved. And she was closing up the store in the evening uh, at around 8.30 at night, and two, two men came into the store uh, holding guns, and she and they asked her to empty out the cash register, which she did. And um, after she gave them all the money, one came around the uh, back of the register and pushed her around a little bit, um, wanted to double check the, that she wasn't hiding anything back there. Um, she fell to her knees, um, pleading for her life. He um, knocked her over and then, uh, backing out of the store, shot her and killed her. And um, they escaped into a car where there was a third person involved and they took off. And there was a witness in the store who identified the two that were in the store and one was apprehended that night, and the other one, who was the Nathan Wolf, who, by the way, is a that's a pseudonym for uh, his real name. I don't use his real name because, as it comes out in my story later on, I, I actually met his mother many years later, and she requested that I not not use his name. Wow. So I use Nathan Wolf as a pseudonym um, okay. for him. Yeah. And then he was apprehended and sent to prison for life. So here you are, 18 years old, you know, you're not quite an adult yet. You're starting out in your, the beginning of your adult life, kind of, and suddenly life will never be the same. How at 18 do you deal with that, process it? Uh, not well. Mm. Uh, in my my book, I talk about the fact that, you know, there was life before the murder and life after the murder. And, um, you know, I didn't have a clue about how to live that life after. And so um, on top of, you know, just the shock of it all, I also did not have a close relationship with my father at the time and, and did not have any access nor really um, guidance to seek therapy. So, you know, I spent a long time, many years, seven years really, before I even really ever got any kind of therapy or spoke to anybody about it. It was a very sort of um, survival mode kind of existence 
until my mid twenties. Wow, you know, and, and it's not so loss is loss. It's uh, but there's a difference between the loss of someone dying of old age and the loss of one nanosecond, split second decision that totally shatters your life, really for generations to come. Because, uh, you know, you became a different person and your children are different than they would have been if this hadn't happened. Um, so you said at 25, you kind of started finding access. Until then, living in survival mode, did you go back to school? Did you? Well, you, you are, you just, I feel like you, I mean, you just nailed it. It's exactly correct. It's, um, it's a different kind of loss. And I, the metaphor I sometimes use is that it's like being dropped off a train blindfolded uh, in the middle of nowhere with no ticket to get home. <laughs> yeah. And that's yeah. a lot of what it felt like. I, you know, just, there's just no map. There's no, um, Roadmap. There's no. You know, there's just no understanding. So um, I did get. I did manage to get a degree. You know, I I, mm -hmm. I, I was a pre med student, believe it or not, prior to her death, mm -hmm. and um, I was just lucky to graduate. By the time I finished, right. I did, did abandoned the pre med idea. Um, you know, managed to get out with a pretty low GPA, but I, I did. Uh, I, I did. Um, you know, I have to admit that I was lost for quite a while. I sort of wandered down some paths of, of alcohol and drugs. Um, thankfully, I, you know, I sometimes, and this is what sort of inspires me to think that there's a higher power that um, I felt like there were these invisible reins that pulled me in just when I needed to be pulled in uh, on a number of occasions. But I, I was lost yeah. I was for the first, you know, it's kind of like a black hole that I just sure. was pulling in. But, um, did you feel uh, so? You know, he was sent to jail, so the, the, you know the legal aspect of it was handled. Uh, did you think about him a lot? Did you rage, uh, you know, or was it just kind of numb and and he wasn't the focus of your attention? Well, the interesting thing—it's—I love these questions because I feel like you are are hitting it. Um, the interesting thing was that I, and don't ask me why, never learned his name. Wow. Until, until 20 years later. So I, what happened was, I, I think I made him invisible. Um, or maybe that was, you know, I, I think it's easier to um, demonize something or someone if you don't name them. Mm. And so I never gave him a name. Uh, I think that I almost, um, I, I did rage against him, but I, I think I raged against him in sort of unconscious ways when it came to topics like gun control or or um, maybe anxiety fear you know of of doing certain things um, but but in terms of thinking about him directly it wasn't until 20 years later that I actually started digging for his name so let's so, segue into that so how did that occur it, it occurred in a strange way um, my husband and I you know we have two daughters and we were going to send them to a school. It was an Episcopal school. And uh, you had to attend this meeting to go, you know, to, to, in order for your children to be sent to this school. So we went to this meeting and, uh, you know, it was a great education. And um, that's where we thought we wanted to send them. So we went to sort of do a look-see. And in the process of this meeting, this gentleman got up and started speaking about his prison ministry that he does with prisoners. And, and he started talking about some of the work that he does. And 
as he was speaking, and this is now 20 years later, mind you, I'm married, I have children, I'm working, I'm productive. You know, on, on the outside surface, I look like a very functional person. Um, but he starts speaking about this prison ministry, and I felt sort of this rage coming up inside of me, this, this sort of acid boiling in my throat, just mm. ready to just spit fire. Like, why would you waste time on these people? Why would you even, you know, just lock them up and throw away the key? They're not worth anything. And um, I got very upset, and then from that, I started crying. And I was in the back of the room, thankfully, where not a lot of people could see me, except for the speaker who did see me. <laughs> sort of unraveling and uh, at the end he came up to me and he said what what just happened and I said I don't really know what just happened so um, he recommended I speak to someone else that was that he worked with and um, uh, interestingly a woman who had the same name as my mother and um, she and I had a few conversations and she sort of helped me she started the dialogue about what is forgiveness and that was the beginning step. Um, it was almost like somebody had changed the dial on a radio for me. Like I had been right. listening to the station for 20 years. And then all of a sudden after his talk, it was like everything sort of tuned into the topic of forgiveness. I, books started popping up. Shows started popping up. Everything sort of started focusing on forgiveness. And, and it took me, you know, two years. It wasn't a quick process, but it took me two years before I actually um, took the first real step. So I want to interrupt you here for a moment. I saw somewhere written on, on a website where, you know, you describe it as forgiveness was for those extremists on Oprah. Yeah. And so it wasn't anything on your radar screen. And then suddenly it surfaces like, uh, you know, uh, all of a sudden, as you say, a different listening to a different bandwidth on the radio. Uh, but I think what I really want to talk about is defining forgiveness because I think that's where you have to start. Most people assume forgiveness means you say, oh, it's okay, I forgive you, mm -hmm. when it's not really okay. What you did was not okay. So tell me more about that whole idea of defining what forgiveness is and what it isn't. Well, thank you, because that is, I mean, that for me was the very first step. And I think I had spent most of my life thinking that um, forgiveness was something that you gave to somebody and and they were off the hook and so when i went in to speak to this woman jean she said to me she asked me what do you think forgiveness means and i sort of stumbled and didn't really have an answer and she said well how about if we back into it and say what forgiveness is not and so then we had this conversation and what i what i came up with was a, a much more comfortable definition of forgiveness which was you know not condoning the act not drawing a veil over it um not um, diminishing my hurt, not um, wanting lesser justice for him, not, you know, all these things that it was not. And so ultimately what it came down to was what it was, for me at least, was uh, releasing all ill will towards him. And I, I loved um, Desmond Tutu's quote where he says, um, forgiveness is uh, not condoning the act. It's simply refusing to pay back the perpetrator in his own coin mm. and wow. uh, stopping the cycle. And yeah. so that, that the definition was really what, once I had this definition, you know, in fact, even when I defined it as, you know, all these things and what it wasn't, I actually, in, co in conjunction with going through this process, wrote a letter to the governor of Louisiana 
requesting that he stay in prison, that he not be released, that he, because he had requested a pardon um, earlier on. I didn't want him out of prison. Right. So. Yes, and that's really great because it, again, it it lies in the definition. It's Mm -hmm. not um, diminishing the horrific act that he committed. It's not diminishing the loss. Uh, It just is not paying back in the same coin, but again, why would you want him released? That doesn't fit in either. Correct. Absolutely. So then, you know, so now you're in that inquiry and you're defining it and clearly it is a very significant part of your life. Uh, What then? Well, um, you know, it all came in steps. I mean, in the process, I was raising two children and trying to have my family, but, but uh, there was definitely a driving force, and I have to say, sort of a mild obsession. Yes. Uh, with like, who was this man? All of a sudden, I was curious, like, who was he? And, I, and it occurred to me, like, what is he doing right now? Uh, is he remorseful? Where, 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 you know, what is? Who is he? I mean, where did he come from? So I, you know, I, I actually petitioned the district attorney's office in Louisiana, in New Orleans, and I paid, <laughs> at the time for me, a chunk of money to get a copy of all the court transcripts, and. They arrived at my home, and I spent you know two weeks just digging through the court transcripts that I because I had not attended the, the trial. Um, thankfully, my family had spared me that, and um, so it was in those trial documents that I learned his name and where he'd come from, and sort of the early you know painting of who he was. And uh, that was you know that was a process that took a long time between you know looking through the court documents, making phone calls. Um, you know, he had gone to prison before the internet, so there was not a lot of. Mm. He was he was only twenty when he went to prison. He was only two years older than I was, so really he was exempt from, and he was completely off the grid. So, and and interestingly, prisoners have a lot more rights than victims. I found out uh, it was very hard to access much information on him, but I chipped away at it for for quite a while and um, kept thinking about this idea of forgiveness and. So I have to ask you something. Uh, just as an offside, uh, what happened to the other two who were there? Did they go to jail? They did go to jail, but because they turned Nathan Wolf in, they copped a plea and got lesser sentences. So by the time I was actually trying to find, you know, find Nathan Wolf and, and communicate with him, they had already been released from prison, which, wow. which upset me greatly because sure, I, was, sure. I was afraid of them. I thought, you know. What if they come after me? What if they come after my family? Yeah. You know, I put, I put them away. My family put them away for, for all these years. But um, which is another reason why I don't use real names in my book because they are still out there. Right. Wow. So. And you know, I could really get that whole thing about being mildly obsessed because, in some perverse way, you and Nathan are inextricably linked. Very true. And so, yeah. as you're reading more about him what kind of percolated for you or what surfaced? Well, uh, you know, what I wanted to know was what kind of a childhood he had had. Mm-hmm. I mean, I knew I had a, a beautiful childhood, you know, in my younger years. Um, and I wondered what brings a person to the place where they can actually, you know, pull a trigger and take someone else's life. Yes. And I wondered how different we were and what I found, you know, I started doing a lot of reading about um, 
you know, I, I sort of dabble in different philosophies and religions. And there's this beautiful um, African term. It's Ubuntu, U-B-U-N-T-U. And it means I am you because you are you because of me and I am me because of you. And it's this concept of sort of this, this very well-woven fabric. And if there's a tear in the fabric, it affects the whole integrity of the whole fabric. And so I began to think about like how he had impacted my life and maybe how I had impacted his life and how it sort of set us both on this trajectory. And could there be something other than grief and pain and suffering if, if there, if we were to recognize each other, each other's humanity? Wow. <laughs> that wow. was the question that sort of percolated. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and I love that Ubuntu. I, I mean, that's incredible. Yeah. So, so now you're grappling with this, and and then where did that next take you? Um, well, I have to say there was a leap of faith in there. I mean, I had done a lot of research. I, in fact, I had created a Manila file folder that I kept on my desk, and every two or three weeks I would go in and look at this or look at that, and I'd sort of plummet into a bit of a you know mild depression, thinking about it and cry, and then I'd close it back up and. Think, not think about it for a few weeks, but I, I kept sort of dancing around this folder for um, for a long time until eventually one day I was in my office. I was working on a, um, I was writing for a newspaper at the time and I was working on a project and I, after I had finished, I pulled the folder out and this piece of paper fell out. And the piece of paper was a phone number that had been given to me by a woman who was um, the director of the Crime Victims Bureau in Louisiana. And she, you know, in the course of helping me and telling me, you know, what his status was and where he was in his sentence and, you know, the little that she could tell me about him, uh, she said, honey, let me give you this phone number. It's to the chaplain's office at the prison. And I, at the time, you know, just kind of blew it off and stuck it in the folder. But here this day in particular, this piece of paper falls out. And so I, I dialed the number just, you know, this is after, you know, many months, probably closer to years of, of sort of thinking about all this. I dialed the number and, and um, there, the man that answers the phone is a Catholic priest. And I'll never forget this man, you know, for the rest of my life. Uh, his, his name was Joel LeBove. That's his real name. Nice Cajun priest in, in the middle of nowhere in Louisiana. And uh, he said, well, what is it that you want to accomplish? And, you know, I was so nervous speaking to him. I didn't even use my real name. And I kind of laugh at myself now that I, I lied to a priest. Um, I used my middle name. And I said, I think I'm, I, I'm trying to forgive the man who killed my mother, but I'm not sure if I'm able to do it. I'm just trying. And so he, he and I had this discussion and we got deep into it. And he said, would you like me to, you know, how do you want to do this? And I, I knew at that time I didn't really want to meet him because I was still too afraid. Yes, I didn't yes. know it. I mean, he, he could have been certifiably insane for all I knew. I didn't know anything about him. But anyway, this kind priest, um, through a series of meetings with Nathan, uh, a letter that I wrote um, and some interactions with him um, facilitated the forgiveness. And interestingly, the thing that was so shocking to me about the whole thing was that, you know, I went from not knowing his name or anything about him to finding out from this priest within you know just a few short phone calls um, that he was terminally ill and would not be alive in three months from the time I had initiated the phone call. Wow. So he was on his deathbed when I found him and um, that was really something. You know, because six months later, I wouldn't have had the chance yes. to do it. Six months earlier, he might not have been remorseful and he was remorseful. He was. 
Yes, did that was. make a difference? It, it, for me, it did. Um, I know that not everybody gets that opportunity to, to, you know, to experience remorse. I mean, you have people who lose loved ones through hit and run accidents. They don't even know who the killer yes. was or is. Um, but I think for me, you know, it was a very um, significant part of the healing process. I don't know if he hadn't been remorseful, and I don't know if he had not been dying, if I'd be where I am right now, but uh, it, it did fall into place. And, I, and, the, and the process, you know, was really astounding to me in terms of how it all fell together. Yes, it's a kind of, uh, you know, you could call it divine intervention or whatever you want to call it, that whole thing and the number falling out of your folder at the appropriate time. Uh, so he died, and... Did yeah. that release you in any way? Uh, it, it did. It did. Uh, I'll never forget the day that I received in the mail the letter from the prison. It was an interest, and it's where I got the name of my book. Uh, the head of the letter said, Notice of Release. Mm. Uh, this is to notify you that uh, Nathan Wolf has been released from prison. And, you know, like I <laughs> held my breath thinking, What? And it said, you know, subject expired on, and he died three days before Christmas uh, in the year 2000. And uh, I remember holding the letter to my chest um, after I read it and crying. I mean, just the tears just flowed out like like a river. And it, it, it was strange because it was it was not only tears of relief, but it was also tears of profound sadness for the life that this guy never led. Yeah. The, the life he never had, the, the people that never loved him, the, the experiences he'd never had, you know, all the things that and it was perfect. It was grief for him. It was yeah. the strangest sensation because I had spent so many years, you know, thinking he should have been, he should have been electrocuted. He, you know, he doesn't deserve to live, you know, not giving him a name. And here I am crying for him and, and his death. Wow. It was very, it was a blindsiding experience and it was all a mystery to me as it happened. <laughs> yes. And since then, uh, you know, you are part of, uh, or you uh, participate in some way in the Forgiveness Project, yes? Yes, yes. Yeah, so, you know, uh, I want to just run through something because you and I uh, talked and you had sent me this diagram, but you've already described it in a way, but I just wanted to, to kind of uh, recap it because I think it's significant. You have this diagram and you talk about a closed system. Right. So the closed system is the one that keeps playing itself out. Pain, fear, and suffering leads you to reject your shared humanity, uh, leads to revenge and retaliation, violence or hurt, and then back to pain, fear, and suffering. Exactly. Whereas the open system, which is kind of the system that you went through, which you start with pain, fear, and suffering, and it didn't, and I think one of the things that you and I talked about that I think is very significant is forgiveness is not a sudden landing. It's a process, you know, it's, and you may have to revisit it again. Uh, so, you know, you can say, I forgive, and then some rage may show up again. So not to be surprised by that. Yeah. But you talked about defining forgiveness, and then you talked about exploring the stories. So we have about four minutes left. I want to kind of maybe briefly go through some of that because I think it's important, that whole process. So when you say explore the stories, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, if possible, I, I think it's, uh, you know, part of the process of getting to compassion is that you have to know someone else's story to understand. I mean, co compassion is, you know, the Latin root is compati, meaning to share 
suffering and to listen deeply and to understand someone else's story. And if, if you start, if you understand someone else's story, uh, you know, it opens the door possible, possibly, possibly to, to compassion. And if you have compassion, you open the door to forgiveness. So a really important step is learning not only, I mean, I knew my story loud and clear. In fact, I was sick of my story. I lived it for 20 some odd years and I was tired of it. So when I started to learn his story is when things started to shift. Yeah. You have to learn other people's stories. And you know, you may not always have the opportunity to do that, like I said, in a hit and run, but even if you have to imagine it somewhat or take pieces of information, the little that you know, to sort of try to create a story. But I mean, we do the best we can. And if you can't do all the steps, then you, you do what you can. But compassion, you know, learning the other person's story or other like people's story, perhaps, is, a, you know, imagining what that person might be living with. Yeah. So, you know, I a, think when you describe it in the beginning where, you know, you just kind of he was invisible to you. You didn't know his name, nothing. So what you're left with is this whole chunk of information, life, whatever that's never seen, it's never visible, it's behind the curtain and, and it's there. Whereas when you started that process of actually allowing yourself, and I think timing has something to do with this also. I yes. think probably there's a certain point where you're still not capable of doing that, but kind of opening the curtain and allowing yourself to experience their humanity because what it does is point you back to your own humanity. Absolutely. Um, I, and I think, it's, you know, I just really want to say that, too, because, you know, I'm, I'm really cautious sometimes about sharing my story, because I, what I'm not saying to people is that you should forgive. Uh, it's not always the right thing. And, and particularly at the wrong time, it's not the right yes. thing. Um, if you if you if you forgive insincerely or or prematurely, you actually risk doing you know more harm to yourself. Yes. Because it's like giving away. Um, it's like donating an organ and regretting it. I mean, right. You can't get you can't get it back, you know. Yes. So you have to. I, I'm really cautious not to say you know everyone should forgive. It's a really personal journey. It's messy. It's 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 different for everybody, but I do think that there are some common steps that right. people travel. And I think the journey is the accurate word. Actually, we're at the end of our time. Uh, sad to say, uh, but I'm so happy that you were willing to come on and share this. And I certainly invite people to watch for the release of your book, to check out your website, because I think your experience expands ours and the fact that you're willing to share it. So Stephanie, thank you so much. Thank you, Natasha, for the work that you do. It's great. Thank Appreciate you. it very much. My name is Natasha Sherman. Thank you for joining us. Mm -hmm.